This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with coach developer Steve Lilly. He discusses his experiences of delivering qualifications for the FA, how he challenges coaches regarding their playing philosophy, and the new company he has created to support grassroots clubs and coaches. This podcast was also recorded over the internet, so it may sound a little different to normal. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so Steve, first of all, thank you for jumping from one meeting into this next meeting, which I'm sure everyone's doing at the moment. Um, I guess the first thing for you, how is everything? Um, how's it being back kind of in the real world to a certain degree and us being allowed out and about? And yeah, how are you? I'm good, yeah. It's been refreshing and nice to get out and about. I was actually found myself out on a pitch the other day as well, which is which um, was pleasing because I've, I've not been on the pitch for a while. So... Yeah, t- touch wood, fingers crossed, all that. Hopefully things are beginning to get back to normal. But it all's good. Good. Um, obviously, kind of approached you off the back of a conversation with our mutual friend or whatnot, uh, Lewis Burden, who suggested you'd be a really good person to talk to, um, just kind of w- with his experience with you. So for those people that haven't come across you before, do you just want to explain kind of your journey to where you are now, what you do um, and all that type yeah. of stuff? Yeah, I won't go all the way back because um, it might take a while. But yeah, for the last five years, I've worked full time for the FA as a county coach developer. Um, so uh, each county had the FA employed one of us in each county across the country. I think there are forty of us in total to, to oversee coach education and coach development um, levels one, two, and UEFA B. Gloucestershire was my patch, my county, and. Um, you know, with with three cities, I guess, or you've got Cheltenham, Gloucester, and Bristol, plus obviously the rural areas, Cotswolds, the forest. It's quite a big area, and certainly a good footballing area. So it was a great role for me. Uh, Lewis came on his his level two, as he certainly did his UA for B. He was, was an outstanding learner, I must say. Um, and uh, yeah, it was nice of him to recommend me to come along. But um, yeah, that, that, I've been doing that for five years due to budget cuts and and the way the FA go in and we, we were made redundant uh, in the summer uh, so I've I've started up a, a, a program to, to maybe just hopefully continue what I was doing because I quite liked it um, so working with clubs working with coaches trying to help you know develop them in their in their coaching journeys. So I guess if, if we touch on the FA stuff now and then we can go on to your coaching company because I know from the, the few things I've seen online and whatnot, it looks like quite an exciting project with quite a lot of good good people involved. Did you see that that was coming before this or is this a reaction to COVID? Um, no, I think it I think it was it was clear that uh, probably this time next year the, the coach education was going to look a little bit different or a lot different, if that makes sense. Um, the world is changing and the FA is a corporate organisation and I think they, they felt they had to change with it, which is their prerogative, it's absolutely fine. Um, I think COVID probably accelerated that process um, and we find ourselves where we are. Um, but I'm still very much um, open to, to tutor courses, whatever they may look like in the future. Um, level twos and UEFA Bs, I've, got, I've retained my licence. And I'll be yeah, be keen to continue working for the FA. They just they're just going um, 
in a slightly different direction now. So, um, and this is a guess I haven't read or heard of anything. I'm assuming that more stuff's going online because that seems like everything is going more online. Is that the case with them as well? Yeah, that's right. So the it's no secret. It's out there. The There's a Playmaker app out already, which is for volunteers to, to go on. So I've done it myself. It's fantastic. Uh, from April next year, that's uh, so April 2021, the FA Level 1, which we all know and love, um, is going online, going digital. Um, and then I, my understanding, it's not been confirmed, but my understanding is that the Level 2 will be called the UEFA C. Um, and I believe it's it's a mixture of face-to-face -face and uh, online learning as well. Um, that's been rolled out in January 2022, so we've got a while to wait for that one, obviously to be designed and rolled out, I believe. But that, that's all I know. Um, I don't know what's happened with the A for B, whether it's going to go back to a regional model, um, because up until now, it's been the last few years, it's been run by counties. But again, I, I'm not aware of what's happening there. I guess something that kind of interests me um, in terms of kind of seeing how the FA developed their coach education model and stuff was I, I did my B licence probably going back probably nine years ago now maybe um, and then speaking to people that have done them more recently it seems like there was there was quite a shift in terms of the way the courses were delivered and the expectations of them so if I go back to mine it's probably more traditional you would kind of turn up deliver a couple of times on the course you might do a little bit of work kind of away from it and whatnot but yeah. it was more kind of how you delivered on that day to, to be whether yeah. you passed or failed whereas it seems like in more recent years they went more towards a kind of journey of trying to get you through the course and there was quite a lot of like supporting coursework that would go with it where you have a portfolio of work and stuff um I guess my first question to you is, is that the case? Is my outside looking in, is that what it looked like? Yes, and two, exactly. how was that for you to deliver that kind of transition? Yeah, no, um, it, it's definitely the case. Um, I never I never tutored the previous B licence, um, but I took it, like yourself, I took it a few years ago. And I think back then it was a case of, we, we had to deliver on course, I'm sure you agree, just to, to demonstrate we understood it so you'd stop it you'd, you'd stop you'd stand still and you'd, you'd intervene and demonstrate to the tutor that we knew what we we're talking about um and, and actually that was probably the way to go because there was no in-situ support at the time we, we were simply trying to demonstrate we understood the, the tactical and technical sides of the game the way we've gone now and, and we've it's still been rolled out because we're starting a b license in gloucestershire in october half term um it's very bespoke to the learner so in the room, you'll have learners who, who are working with different types of groups, you know, female game, male game, adult game, um, 9v9, although not so much, 11v11, etc. You might have elite environments, like grassroots environments. So it was very much bespoke to the learner. And also, it was we were, we were fortunate enough to, or we are fortunate enough to support them in situ. So we at least three visits to their own coaching environment. So we get to know them. We get to know their players and, and, and we and, and they can kind of vary their interventions and their coaching styles based on the players in front of them. Um, so it, I, I, I thought it was fantastic. I still think it's a fantastic course. Um, it wasn't that horrible kind of final assessment. You know, pe people would be given time to, to, 
to pass as and when they're ready. Uh, so yeah, it's a good, good, good course, which I hope they don't tamper with it too much. I think I, I certainly, for one, think it's fit for purpose. And then I guess for you guys going into that in situ environment, one of the things you said there is you get to know the, the person and the players a little bit better. Has there ever been um, examples of where you've gone to a person in situ and gone, actually, the way that they act is perfect for that environment or I wasn't expecting to go there and see that how well they're able to adapt when they're with players that they know or anything like that. 100% and I had a conversation this morning actually about how sometimes it's so difficult to coach your peers if you're on course you know and you it's very stage managed isn't it we've all been there and you're kind of coaching the peers and people that are older than you and etc. Be a coach in their own environment with players they understand and know and have worked with for many years it was a perfect environment and yeah I, I was surprised pleasantly surprised many a time similarly I've had a, a occasions where I've gone and I've been surprised um yeah unpleasantly <laughs> but we, we soon sort that out but no it was a really good I, I felt a really good experience for, for learners have you got any examples of of situations where you've turned up and just kind of blown away by what the coach does with those players for me, it's the it, it, it's a massive balancing act, and we talk about this a lot on course. We we give learners, we throw so much content at learners, and you, you've been there yourself as a learner on various courses. You like sponges, aren't they? And, and you take on this information. And for me, the skill of a coach is to then know how much and which parts of that to give to their players, because just because you know it all. It might not be the right time to impart it on their players. So for me, that was the the delight I got when I, I saw coaches keeping it simple, maybe taking a message or two this week and then a message or two the week after and not bombarding players with all this tech-tack information. Um, so there, for me, that was the real pleasing um, time when I, when I visit, visit people like that. Lewis was one. Lewis had a great group of young players, but he, he kept it simple for them. He didn't overcomplicate the game for them and do you have any strategies to help people with that because i imagine you know sometimes you can say that to, you're blue in the face but coaches at times can be very well intentioned and uh, i've been in this situation you're very well intentioned but you kind of get in your own way because you feel like everything needs to come out now to show that mm -hmm. you're able to do what you want have you got any strategies for people that maybe you know are delivering practices or delivering design and where they can actually go well yeah maybe this week i'm going to work yeah. Area and it's a journey for the players rather than a bombardment, if you like. Yeah, I think the, the term they use or we use is scaffolding, isn't it? In education, we try and scaffold the learning. It's no different for footballers that um, you can't go in with it all at once. You build it up gradually. Um, very often, I must say, it's probably not a, thought, a well thought out strategy. But sometimes coaches have to fail. You know, you can tell them what you want, but. They have to fail themselves and then reflect themselves and think, oh, that's too much. It sometimes is the only way to do it. Um, it's sometimes a lot more powerful. You know, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all we've all set a session up. Well, it's great on paper and the players just don't understand it, don't grasp it. Okay. Fine, I reflected it. Why is that? Probably a little bit too complicated to advance. So a couple of strategies, but um, got some good guys and girls on the, on the courses. They're, they're really open to feedback. I guess that's quite an important side there, that feedback process in terms of being able to review 
what they're doing, but also so they've got a, a certain level of self-reflection in terms of them being able to speak to you and go, yeah, this is what went wrong and this is what went right. Absolutely. It's, it's a, I'm sure you're aware it's, a, it's reflection is a part um, of the process we've been really hammering home to learners. I, I often think, I think it's a cultural thing. We love planning as a, as a, as a community of coaches. We, we'll spend an hour planning a session and we love the doing, but it's the, the reviewing that I think we get lazy with sometimes. And I wonder if we are, are just don't know how to review and how to reflect properly. I would say to the, the, the juices that I work with, our, our, the aim here is by the end of the course, they shouldn't need us. They should be in a position to reflect on their own practice, offer peer feedback to each other, and we can almost sit back and observe. And when we get there, that's a really good feeling. Yeah, that's quite interesting. How do you help them with that then? How do you help them to be able to reflect better? Because like you said, I don't know how long a, a course might last if it was a mm. B course, for example. But imagine you're not getting extensive amount of contact mm. time with them because obviously they're going away and delivering, you're going to other courses. Mm. And stuff. How do you, going back to scaffolding, how do you scaffold, in so, uh, scaffold so they're able to reflect better on practices? Yeah, I mean, the B license, we're, we're fortunate, it's a year a year or a season-long programme, so you, you do have that. And when you're working with a learner over a, a season, although you only see them kind of four on four blocks and then three occasions in situ, uh, there is that, that we've got a small cluster group we work with, eight learners each as a tutor. So we, we have that almost like weekly fortnightly contact. You know, we might say, you know, let me know how that went. And just write some reflection and then give us a ring about that. And, we have more contact. It becomes harder when in the level two, and we have less time, and we still do the institute support. Um, that's where we really, really scratch the surface in terms of reflection. But by the time they get to be licensed, I'd like to think that they really are reflecting on the practice. Um, so again, I suppose that's an example of scaffolding. Is you know, if, a, if a learner has a journey where they go on to level one, we touch on it, reflection, reflection. We build it up gradually, level two, and then come B license, and then presumably A license. Um, they're they're okay with it. One question I have is: you mentioned there how many different people and different areas you have um, mm. on those types of courses. So, how do you differentiate between learners in terms of what you're supporting them with, and how do you go about kind mm. of catering either your feedback or their sessions, or to a degree their reflection? Because the example could be. I could go and reflect by using performance analysis if I've got it. And that might yeah. be a really for me. Whereas if you go to someone who's working with a grassroots team and doesn't have a camera, they can't do that. So how do you go about differentiating between your learners uh, to be able to help them get the feedback that they need? Mm. That's a good question. Yeah. And, and you're right. You've spot on that is exactly what we, we come across. Um, we, I think two, two, two parts to the answer, I guess the first part is, we're really fortunate uh, that we, we have a syllabus that we have to deliver, but we're, we're given a license as tutors to make it bespoke to learners. So I'll give an example. After block one of the UA4B, uh, they will all have a, all the learners will have an in-situ support visit by one of the tutors. We will, we will feed back then into, as tutors into a Google doc. Um, and then we'll see patterns emerging. So, you know, needs to work on this, needs to work on that. Excellent technical uh, knowledge. And we'll start building this profile of learners and we can then actually group them in block two as to what they need. So it might be that 
one of the tutors takes the guy, you know, seven or eight of them away for practice design. I might take a group of, uh, around reflection. So we can start, you know, differentiating within the course. Um, so that, that's the first part of the answer. And that worked really, really well. And, and secondly, I think it's really important that learners are able to, well, the project work, for example, that some people do outstanding projects in terms of their IT skills, because it might be that they're maybe a younger learner or, or their job involves IT. Others are more comfortable on the grass. You know, and so they might not produce a glossy project, but as long as we can see that they've taken the, the, the content in and have evidenced it, it's, it's really uh, up to them how they do that. Uh, as long as they take pride, pride in it, which, which they, they all did. So, Have you seen any unique ways of presenting that dossier or that project? Yeah, we had a, a level two learner who's um, clearly very good on the, uh, with IT, who, who kind of almost did a video diary. Okay. Um, which is great because it's just a tutor, you know, it does get a little bit, can get a little bit tedious for a school teacher marking all the projects, but the video die was fantastic. Um, one guy used the time in his car after sessions to reflect, so did audio, which is absolutely fine. So literally driving home, reflecting immediately after the session, uh, recorded all those. Um, we had a guy on a UA for B who he, in his own words, went old school and stood at the front with flip chart and just took us through his journey. And it's fantastic. It's it's a real, it's that differentiation is fantastic. It really is. And did it challenge any of your beliefs when you were getting those different type of feedback? Was there anything that you thought, actually, I would steal that if I was going to do your sort of presentation? All I do is steal stuff. It's all I do is steal ideas. It's You learn something every day. I was doing a level two. Uh, down in Dorset on Saturday and I said at the end that my the tutor I was working with it's just like I learned something every time I'm not a bloody tutor but I learned something every time um yeah I think it's, it's sharing good practice pinching ideas off other tutors off learners uh, and and seeing what fits really yeah so yeah definitely so what what's the the best bit that you've stolen from a learner <laughs> wow that's a question oh blimey I might have come back on that <laughs> if you put me on the spot there I'll, i will have to think about that one let me let me ponder that as you ask me other questions <laughs> okay so obviously with with the um the fa and stuff like you said there's a kind of syllabus you have to work through and stuff which yeah. i guess work around the principles of the game yes um i guess where, where these have been put into place and it's kind of more come not uh, become more common knowledge have you seen a improvement at grassroots level with teams demonstrating those principles principles of the game etc i have I, I definitely have we when the new qualifications were, were all revamped or whatever the word is probably four years ago maybe five uh five years ago i think at the time when we were we were um put into our positions the um principles of play came in at level one and they never did previously. The principles of play came at level two for them. But we just felt as a, as a governing body that the principles of play are the game. It's the principles of invasion games. It's where it all starts. So one of the first things we talked to learners about on the day one of a, a level one were the principles of play. And and they, they would kind of um, be revisited in every single workshop. We then talked to them about 
how the FA themselves interpreted those principles. So the, the England DNA model. So these are the principles, but clubs can interpret them in different ways. Um, England had a model whereby in possession, uh, they looked to counter upon winning the ball back if possible. But if they weren't able to, if it wasn't the right time, then they would retain and build, they would progress and penetrate, and then create and score. So a simple in-possession model and, and, and a similar one for out-of-possession. But what we would then do is challenge, once they got a grasp of that, we challenge learners throughout the qualifications to come up with their own philosophy of play for their players. So actually, do they want to be a bit more direct? Do they want to play out from the back? Do they want to play through the thirds? Without the ball, do they want to win the ball back earlier? Do they, do they want to sit off? And that might change from game to game. It might change season to season, group to group. But it just got people thinking about the game a bit more. And I, and I, I genuinely see that now. I, I'm a... I'm now a football parent as well, so my lad plays under nine football. And, and I, I can see from the other side of the pitch, coaches giving things thought, not overdoing it, overcomplicating it, but certainly giving the game some thought and helping the players within that. So I think this, I will say this, I'm biased, I think the standard of coaching has, has improved massively because of these new qualifications, yeah. So here's, here's a, I guess, a question which would be interesting to hear your response. Obviously, at professional academies, they all have philosophies of play or principles of play, uh, which they have, some of which are going to clash, I guess, with the England DNA. Mm -hmm. They want to do it. I'd imagine you probably have learners who equally are going to come up with philosophies or principles that will clash with the England DNA. How do you go about finding common ground with people when you're discussing that? And I guess how much of it is them just being happy with what they have or what they want but you can challenge it in a constructive way if you know what I mean yeah no I'd like to think that we have never as a team of tutors um knocked down any ideas about you know about philosophy we haven't had many different ones I think people trust the FIA and go and kind of copy the England DNA but if learners come on the course and if a learner wants to play a more direct style of football one, they've got a rationale behind that and providing all their work is is geared around that and it's joined up it's not for me to say i mean i worked with a, a ladies team a gloucestershire county ladies team a few years ago for about three years and the, the make no secret of it our, our philosophy in possession was to get the ball into the final third as early as possible and the reason being we had three very very quick strikers and it worked for us. We were successful. Now, you know, that was one way of playing. If you give me another group, I might have a different philosophy of play. So for me, it's, it's personal to, to the group you're working with. So, yeah, going back to your, your question, it wasn't, a, it was never our job to preach. Um, as providing people had a rationale behind their thinking, it's absolutely fine. What you'd find was the, the other learners, the fellow learners were the ones that would be prodding away and questioning and and the right way and this and, that and the other and it was quite fascinating to sit back and, and listen to the, some of the debates but uh, it's England DNA is one way of doing it and there are other ways do you think um that because everyone kind of matches England DNA or everyone watches your Man City's Barcelona's and stuff where they want to play and pass and pass and pass and press that in a way we've become stale in terms of everyone doing the same thing all the time and constantly getting that rather than seeing anything else? 
I personally do think that. Um, this is just me, my own personal opinion. It's not, you know, the opinion of the governing body or anything like that. I, I, I was brought up, I guess, my football education to three, three rules, three ways to beat a block. If you're in possession, there's three ways to beat a block. The first way is probably over it. So if there's an opportunity to go over the block, it's an easiest and most direct route. If you can't go over the block, then you probably try and go through it. That's quite direct. But if you can't go through it, you go around it. And wherever the ball is on the pitch and you're in possession, that block will look different. It might be able to shift it and switch play in order to move the block around. But I, I see a lot now teams of all levels playing out from the back through the third um, at every opportunity. And I, and I just feel we're losing sight a little bit of the principles of play. So for me, you, you know, you've got to create and exploit space. So if there's spaces in behind the back line and you've got the ability to put the ball in behind the back line, for me, that, that that's obvious. Because if you do that a couple of times, the opposition's block will drop, which will enable us to play out from the back. So I think we've probably lost that game of chess type outlook of football. Uh, but again, it's just, just my opinion. I, I, I personally find some of the football I watch on TV a little bit slow and draining. And I quite like the way teams attack quickly I like the, the fact they're more direct I think a, a variety is key of football certainly would you challenge would you challenge learners on that so if, yeah. if they kind of just went oh I'm basically going to go down uh, play through the first pressing high thing would you challenge them to think about why they're doing that yeah anyone has been on course with me will know that I, I'm probably my skill set is playing devil's advocate it's what I do I don't preach I just nudge i throw hand grenades into discussions i challenge i get people to my job is to get people wrestling with their own ideas and uh, i've probably become quite good at it over the years um yeah but my my personal opinion it matters matter really is it? it's, it's my personal footballing opinion but um i think it's good that people have got their own thoughts and opinions around the game so how would you challenge them on it um i think one thing that's come up a lot is um, when we ask people to design practices around their playing philosophy, design a practice to play out from the back. Well, then I think it's important then that we we set an opposition up to challenge that because we can all set up a scenario in training where you play out from the back, the opposition drops off, they let you play out. Well, match day comes and they lock onto your players, they lock onto your centre backs. Not so much now with the new rule change, but lock onto your full backs and lock onto your centre midfielders. And all of a sudden, the opposition are not letting you do what you, you did in training. I think on course, a lot of the time, we have set up little scenarios. All right, you want to play at the back? We're going to do this. So you can't play at the back, so what are you going to do? And then it's sort of, it's kind of preparing them for match day, because that'll happen. That'll happen. We, you know, I was talking to someone this morning in a meeting. We were saying like they like to, they like to um, press from the front, but set a trap. The trouble is, he said, the opposition very often just it long so we can't press from the front well yeah that's the rules that's the within the laws of the game that's no problem so football's never that simple is it is unfortunately there's always an opposition trying to stop you doing what you want to do gone off on a tangent there aren't it michael no no, no that's good. <laughs> I, I like it i think um i agree with you i think there is always an opposition trying to stop you do and trying to work their way i guess a question i'd have and this is just a personal thing what are your thoughts on the retreat rule 
Ah, right. They're straight. Right. Okay. I've got I've got some thoughts and I've got the answer, um, but nobody's ever listened to me. So my opinion is that when children start playing football under sevens, it, it's fantastic. And I think under eights. I think under nines, one player should be allowed to stay in the half. I think under 10s, two players should be allowed to stay in the half. And then I can't even remember if it's not there when it gets removed, maybe under 11s. But I think it should be a, a gradual thing. I think it should be, you know, almost partially, non-opposed, non partially opposed, opposed. Because when you take the retreat line away, it's almost alien to them, isn't it? All of a sudden you're being marked. Um, so I think that's that should come in. I don't say why it can't come in. The other problem I have is sometimes it's um, interpreted incorrectly. So a goalkeeper will save the ball, catch the ball, and then everybody just waits for the opposition to retreat. Well, it was never intended to be that way. It's from set pieces, from spot picks, isn't it? So the goalkeeper should have the opportunity then to maybe break, wrong, whatever's best. And I think they need to learn from an early age that that is an option um, to not to let everybody get back into shape. So there's two things. Is it in being interpreted correctly, i.e. only from goal kicked? And secondly, I think there should be more gradual introduction to pressing. So if you can picture an under-9s match and one striker is allowed to stay in the opposition's half, well, it gives them a problem to solve, but not a massive problem, does it? You know, you've, you've, you've still got spare players. So uh, that's my idea. So why do you think it's so beneficial under-7s and 8s? Uh, because I think if... They didn't have it. I think the goalkeeper would roll or play out to players. The ball would be nicked off the toe and they would concede lots and lots of goals. So then they'd probably resort to just whacking it up the pitch anyway. I'm not sure players understand how to create space at six, seven, eight. Why should they? Excuse me, why should they? I think it's almost like a, a support mechanism, isn't it? It's like a, a, rubber, a rubber ring, just helping out a little bit. Again, my personal opinion. See, I, I, my my only issue with it is, and again, I haven't seen extensive amount of grassroots football after pretense this. I've seen my brother play when he was younger and do it. And I almost felt like they would pass to the defender mm -hmm. and then the Alamo comes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then it goes. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Um, and so I was seeing it there and I was, for me, when I was there on the day, I was like, this seems <laughs> madness because all we're doing is gaining seven yards yeah. and yeah. then do the same outcome. I, I agree. I think that's not too much the law or the rule. I think that's where we as coaches and adults have to be sensible and try and get the kids to interpret the rule correctly. So not having five outfield players, six outfield players charging at the ball. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't happen because they see it as a real good opportunity to win the ball high at the pitch and score. But I think, done properly, it's a, it's a good rule with, with sensible people on the sideline. I think it's a good support mechanism for them. But I see where you're coming from. I, I kind of like your idea of maybe setting them problems in terms of having one or two in there because mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, if you're adding in maybe a, a striker then the goalkeeper's got a decision, where am I going to play? Where's the, where am I trying to find space? to yes. get the ball away from him. But, but similarly, and similarly, actually you can start working with young players on, on pressing. So like you said, at the moment, it's, it's not 
really pressing. It's like the Dutch pressing of 1974, was it, when they just charge? But if you've got a forward, you can even start talking to them about cutting off to one side of the pitch. It's a simple instruction. You know, so can you actually encourage the ball to go one side? And then obviously the players behind him can or her can, can react accordingly. So I think there's a bit of learning that could be done with that gradual introduction of, of players, both in and out of possession. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that there's probably ways to be implemented. And like you said, that I, I do like your point in terms of it allows them to try and have some sort of composure on the ball. Because obviously mm. when everyone was just standing next to one another, it, it, it mm. caused issues. I guess it's just how we frame that to do it in, yes. in a constructive manner. Yeah, um, yeah. One question, kind of linking to a couple of points you said, um, and linking back to a podcast I did a little while ago with guys from Magic Academy, so Russell Earnshaw and John Fletcher. Okay. And uh, Russell Earnshaw mentioned that at times he sees some unhelpful behaviour on the touchline. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a coach educa- educator, he finds that challenging because he says you're not making it enjoyable for the kids. You're not necessarily getting principles out, all that type of stuff. I guess my question to you, you've mentioned you're a dad and you've got a son who uh, is playing football. You're also a fan of football, because I want to be working it. And you're obviously also a coach, educator and a coach. Do you see those unhelpful behaviours? And if you do, do you try and challenge the individuals regarding that or not? So far as a parent, I've been very lucky. Um, the guys who coach my son's team are are fantastic, I have to say. They're absolutely fantastic. Um, they didn't do the course with me either. They didn't do the level one with me. It was in Somerset. Um, so I'm not just saying that. Um, their manner is just fantastic. Parents are fantastic. We've The teams we've played against, on the whole, have been pretty good. Um, however... It over in my years of doing in situ support visits and being around the grassroots scene, yeah, I see lots of was it unhelpful, unhelpful, unhelpful behaviour. I think there's the obvious unhelpful behaviour, which is just buggery and stupidity on the side, and we're screaming and shouting at children. There's that. That's obvious. We can all tell that there's no place for it. But that some of the behaviours I find are done with the carried out with the best intention so mums and dads will tell players what to do before they've done it they think they're helping well actually they're hindering aren't they they're completely hindering and i, I do a little bit of a, a role play on course which i won't do now um where i, I put myself in the, in, the, in the shoes of a seven-year-old footballer who who's got all these things going through their mind as the ball is rolled out to them or past them. These decision-making processes, okay, where's the ball coming from? Where do I want it to go? Which foot am I going to control it with? Is there a player pressing me? How much time have I got? Where are my mates? All this. And then we have adults trying to help by shouting to tell him what to do with it or her what to do with it. And I just think that, that kills kids. And then they just whack it they don't want the ball anywhere near them so although i'm not an advocate of silent saturdays or whatever they do sometimes i'm not an advocate of that i think mums and dads and grandparents should praise and clap and congratulate and put their thumbs up after things have happened i don't think there should be any any information before things happen because it takes all decision making away from players and would you 
challenge people if you saw them doing that? Um, <laughs> in my role as a parent or a coach educator? <laughs> I guess both, because I, I, I guess for you it is a double-edged sword to a certain degree. As a coach educator, I would. Um, as a parent, I would have to do it very subtly. I try and stay out of the way. I always turn up in my, my civvies. And I, yeah, I would I would choose my moment to do it. I would address any, the behaviours I was talking to you about um, before, which is the thuggery and the shouting, I would address that. If I felt it was over the line, you know, if they'd gone over the top. But in terms of the other stuff, I, I'd probably have to bide my time a little bit and choose my right moment. I think um, in the podcast I did with those guys, Russell said that invariably he'll just go and have a chat with the person. Mm. And he said, so if any of you are listening and all of a sudden you see me come and talk to you, you can probably suggest <laughs> that you're being unhelpful. Um, but I think I think like you said there, a lot of it is well intentioned and is trying to support the kid, but actually, at times you're hindering them because you're adding an extra two or three layers into what's already a very complex situation. And I guess the other thing that's challenging as well is you don't know what the coach is asking them to do. Um, and I, I guess you'll see this a lot in terms of working with a coach um, and thing. They might specifically ask the child every time possible, can you receive on your non-dominant foot? Yeah, yeah. And they might lose it four out of five times. Yeah. And you've got a parent on the sideline going like, come on! Whereas mm -hmm. he's doing the task he's been set to try and develop. So I guess it's that minefield of not entirely... Absolutely. Sure what it's funny because funny we... We started to, on course, encourage, on level one, we, we do the final workshop of the level one, which is no longer the level one, but was a linking practice to competition. So actually, you know, not just taking training sessions and match days in isolation, but linking what you do on a training morning or night to the game at the weekend. And, and we talked about measures of success. So, of course, the score will always be one measure of success. However, have you got others? So we're working on um, we're working on playing out from the goalkeeper. And we're going to work on it. And we're also going to work on it on match day as well. So we're going to measure how successful we were. So every break, you know, the, the other thirds, don't know, all the halves, every team talk, every bit of praise will be around playing out from the back. And, and one thing we said to learners, and bear in mind it's level one, so it's their first experience of learning in terms of group education, we encourage them to do their team talks front of parents and the, the look that they gave us absolutely not but uh, I said well if you're brave enough to do that it'll help you long term because of what you've just said Michael is that they'll then know what you're asking them to do so then if if they roll the ball out from the back and they try something the mums and dads can applaud that effort they can applaud the fact that they're trying to do what they've been asked but yeah the messages are very mixed and, and that, I know that doesn't happen I've never seen it, a team talking in front of parents. Um, but I think it could help everybody. I really do. I wonder, on that, it's quite a good way of doing it, whether you almost put a board on the parent's side of the pitch. Great idea. If you don't want to do the thing, Brilliant just get idea. a board. We, we all have chalkboards around the house or whatever, or whiteboards, and just write, today, the focus will be this. 
and you might then help frame the parents to look for that and so if they can work to applaud that then that would be ideal you know you, earlier you said about nicking stuff off learners well i've just nicked that one off you and i'm going to make out who's my idea <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no i think you're right and, I, I, and listen let's face it everyone's got a whatsapp group for parents now haven't they for, for football so even even in the whatsapp group on the morning of the game I all just to let you know this is what we're working on. Yeah, there must be a way, like you say, if you're not confident to do that talk in front of parents, yeah, there must be a visual way. So, great shout. I guess, I guess for you, one thing you're seeing with your son playing as well is obviously his enjoyment of football, but obviously his development in turn trying to learn skills and all that type of stuff. Um, I guess with someone who very well educated in terms of processes and scaffolding for children and stuff, it would be really interesting to hear your insights. So when he's finished a game or he's finished a training session or whatnot, and he comes over to you, what's the process to then him kind of getting home to have dinner or getting home to have lunch or what that, what does that look like for someone who's obviously quite well educated in, in that process? Well, me, well, ed well educated. <laughs> well, I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> I, um, it's a really interesting question. I, from, from the moment he was born, I thought, right, if he, if he starts to play football, I will not get involved. Uh, and I think I've stuck to that. I, I, I play football with him a lot. He wants me to. When we go to the field, we do what he wants to do. Usually it's me and goal, getting whacked, getting balls whacked at me. After matches, it's fascinating because I, I, I because I've preached it for so long, the first thing he says, you enjoy that, mate? I do praise how hard he works. I probably go over the top on that. I, I praise, he worked so hard today and you battle. I talk about that a lot, but I've never offered him any advice and this is God's honest truth unless he's asked for it. And there was a time last year and he said, well, why don't you coach me like you did such and such? He knows I've worked with some players in the past and they're his heroes now. And I said, well, you haven't asked me. So now he'll ask me, what did I do well today? I'll tell him. What didn't I do well? And it's almost like he's been on a level one course himself, you know. What went well, what didn't. So he's got this, it's come from within where he's kind of intrigued by the game and he'll, he'll ask me, not all the time, but he'll ask me for a bit of feedback. Um, but not once have I offered advice without him asking him for it. I think it's my place to do so. So it's interesting that he's obviously got to stage where he wants to know your mm. opinion. How do you think mm. you end up getting to that? How do you think he ended up getting to the stage where he's like, actually, I want to know what you think? Or what? I think I think because he knows he knows I work in the game. He knows that I've worked and coached players, and and I think he's probably puzzled a bit. Like, why you know why why isn't he imparting all this information to me? And so I think he probably worked out in his mind that to, to get it, he needs to ask for it, and he needs to to come to me. And I'm more than happy that I won't go over the top with feedback, but there'll be tiny bits, and and I'll always praise like I said the effort um yeah it's an interesting one for someone too young 27 <laughs> uh to, to, to sit in the car and say what did you think I did well and what did you think I didn't do well so um, on the on the situations where he doesn't do that <laughs> what does what does Leader. he do uh, just doesn't talk about it or just says can we go and, can we play football when we get home genuinely genuinely I mean I think it's it, he might leave it for two days. So he, he plays. This come about my son. I, I don't want to talk about my son too much. 
for everybody. But we played a couple of Sundays ago, and it was one of those games with it just it just passed him by, bless him. It happens, doesn't it? It's no problem. And he came out and he didn't say a word. And then two days later, he he brought it up. Can we go and practice such and such? I didn't think I played well on Sunday. Of course we can, mate. I think I'll be careful not to shove feedback into anybody's face too early. It's that reflection, even for a seven-year-old, to reflect on their own game. Um, and it's the same with learners as well, I guess. But yeah, it's interesting. He's, I said to a group at the weekend, he's my little case study. It's not the reason I had him, but he is my little case study. And I've probably learned so much in the two years he's been playing football about, about children and development and this, that and the other. Is there anything that um, seeing his development up close challenged the way you coach kids? Oh, blimey. I haven't coached that age group for a long time, so I haven't really reflected on that. Um, off the top of my head, no. I guess, I'm, I guess my biggest reflection is I'm just pleased that I'm able to to um, practice what I preach. You know, it's all right to stand in the bathroom and say, yeah, don't get emotionally involved and it's only a game and this I, I, I'm, I'm fortunate I can step away. I can, I can, I can watch him lose 6-1 and just think, do you know what? It's, it's great. It's, he's happy. He's forgotten about it two minutes later. So I'm just pleased I'm not that person who, who, um, who can't practice what I preach. I guess the last question on this, and we'll move on, uh, move mm. on to so other topics. Um, how important do you think it is to expose competition to kids at the younger ages? So I know a lot of it is we work off a friendly basis and then kind of towards the end of the season, you have your tournaments and all that type of mm. stuff. Do you think we've got the current balance right in terms of non-competitive competitive? Do you think it should be more one way or completely one yeah, way I, from what i can see i watched under nine football i watched under eight football last year and at that age they work their socks off they i almost want to bottle it up and i don't want them to get older because i they all just work their socks off. they're all competitive they, i don't i honestly don't think they need labels like it's a cup match it's a league match it's this, it's that. They just want to enjoy the game and run around. And I, I strongly believe that they're naturally competitive anyway, kids. Some more competitive than others, but that's the nature. I don't think we need that stuff. And I think, now I've seen it firsthand, I think the decision to take away league tables, I think it was a good one. Because I think the, the, the adults are the ones that get carried away with all that. They genuinely do. Um, I had a really, really good conversation with, with my son's manager, on Sunday, um, two matches, and the second one, he won't mind me saying, the second one they lost heavily. And he was really, really upset because he felt he'd let the lads down because if they'd have not lost by a certain number of goals, they would have got to a cup final. Quite honestly, none of the lads knew that. They weren't bothered about cup finals. They're still seven and eight. It's They're not at that stage yet. And I defy anyone to say any differently. So that said, I don't know about nine, ten-year-olds. I don't know... Um, I don't know enough about them as to when that changes. I certainly think that when they get to high school, 11, I think the world changes a little bit and they're all, they're accountable for their own performances. They probably need that element of, of competition. Um, but at mini soccer age is a foundation phase. For me, it's, it's spot on. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think what's interesting from my perspective, I agree with you. I think the introduction of friendlies and scrapping league tables and stuff was really, really good. I think one thing I have seen with my group and a few of my groups with the introduction of um, competitive tournaments or whatnot is they've actually learned to manage their emotions better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas it started off, whenever we play in a tournament, it was the World Cup final. You know, everyone would get worked up. And the, the type of tournaments that we play, you would play five or six games over a day. Um, and it was kind of a running thing over six or seven days um, at different points of the season. Yeah. And um, if they lost the game, if they lost the first game, that's almost then done for the rest of the day. Mm. They can't get over the fact that they've lost that game, you know, the thing. Yeah. Whereas after a, a few goes at it, a few different days, a few different tournaments, they learnt that almost emotional stability a little bit better. Yeah. They realised, okay, that 20 minutes is gone. There's nothing I can do about that. Mm. So what can I control? Well, I can focus on the next 20 minutes, which is happening in five minutes' time, by the way. Mm. Um, and so I, I think my, my personal opinion is I think the introduction of competitive football at different points skillfully is actually has real benefits at the younger age groups just to help them with yeah. that emotional stability of realising, OK, you've lost a game of football, you don't yeah. get too low. OK, you've won a game of football, don't get too high, try and stay on an even kill. I don't know what your thoughts would be on that. I know that's not a first-hand experience for you. but no, I, I, I think you're right. I agree. I, I just, I, I can only go by what I've seen. I think they still still have the, they know they've lost, won or lost. Even if the, the game, the result's not recorded, they know what the score is. It's not stupid, are they? So I think they have those emotions anyway. But I agree. I think as they get older, they, they need to be exposed to competition. They need to learn how to control the emotions. Uh, I agree with you. I don't know what it looks like now, but I think it's at one point the academy system, certainly for the youth development phase, I, I thought that got a little bit soft. And you're talking about kids here who are a year or two off gain, potentially getting a scholarship. For me, that that that's, you need to learn to win. Like you need to play the game properly, but you need to, like you say, want and learn to win. Because otherwise they'll get a bloody shock when they start playing in, um, in the youth team or, or, or hopefully as a pro. I just turn it on and off like a switch. So it's a tough one, isn't it? It's a big talking point, but I think we've got it right at the moment in terms of um, grassroots football, certainly. Um, one, sorry, Michael. One, one other thing I, I I found crept into coaching a few years, but I don't see it as much now. Is as adults, I don't think we should be saying too much. It doesn't matter if you lose. It doesn't matter if you lose. I don't think we should say that. You're almost then taking the competitive nature away. I just don't think we need to say anything. The game's there. Try and win it. That's interesting because I'll be honest. I use that phrase. <laughs> say, oh dear. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I I say I'm not I'm not worried about the result. I'm worried about the performance. Is is a phrase that I use because I just say I want you to compete. If you and try and do the things that we've been working on. If you try and do those and you lose thirteen nil, that's fine. I'd rather that than you just not do any things we've worked yeah. on and but it's quite an interesting thought for you to say that yeah. we don't need to address that uh, yeah it's, it's personal I, I just don't think i'd address it and that yeah i don't think i'd address it like that but it's personal i don't think it, we should encourage kids to to not try and win you know they've got to try and win we've got to try and win 
you ain't going to win all, but you've got to try and win. But again, uh, horses for courses, I guess. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, my, my big one is be competitive. That's a, probably the phrase I say most over an entire, entire season is be competitive. Um, you know, the old phrase of the bigger they are, the harder they fall for your little ones and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think big thing for me, if you can ma- maintain that competitiveness in everything you do, we'll be okay. It doesn't matter if, if you do lose, okay. If you do win, okay. But if you're competitive, then that will hold you in good stead moving forward. Um, and I, I think academy football has hit a bit of a turning point in terms of not not being so. They have Premier League qualifiers and all that type of stuff now, which is great. I've experienced firsthand going abroad for tournaments with my lads. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, I think going to those types of tournaments where, you know, we've been fortunate, we've gone and there's been Anderlecht and Brilliant. You know, PSV and all that type of stuff. And not necessarily those teams, but when we've been out on the continent, it is to win. Yeah, absolutely good. good. You go out there and they, they want to win and, you know, they have crowds there and some of the, you know, the um, Eastern Bloc countries will come and they'll have scarves and yeah, yeah. You know, all that type Brilliant. of stuff. And, um, I've always said I find it interesting with our lads. The first couple of games, they're looking around going, what is is this? But again, it's something that they, over time, try and improve on. And I always say, um, you know, it's a constant discussion point with a lot of people I speak to in academies is how can we prepare them for that? How can you prepare the kids for that environment where, you know, people might have flares that are waving around or chants or drums how can we in this country, whilst yeah. sticking to our principles, preparing for that? It's still a uh, a work in progress, I'd say. Yeah. But great that they're getting those um, experiences. I mean, yeah. brilliant experience. We, we did uh, many moons ago, I worked at Peterborough United in the academy system, and we tried to um, expose our players to as many different environments, scenarios, playing styles as possible. And we took them away a lot to, to Scandinavian countries, to Ireland. Germany, uh, just because we felt it was key for their development. So it sounds like you're doing the same. I, I think it's so important. Yeah. I guess um, we'll move on to kind of what your projects are now, because I know that it's pretty exciting what you're doing um, and kind of off the back of that. So do you want to explain kind of what your project is at the moment, what your role is, how that's looking, yeah. kind of what's yeah. going through? Because from what I've seen, as I said, it, it looks like a really exciting project. Yeah. Uh, so I I formed a company called ECAN. So the CAN is coaches and coaching advisory network. And we hopefully the next few years roll out a few projects, programs. But the first one we're really looking to um, develop is called Parson Support. So it's looking at how coach education is going now. I think there's going to be a little bit of a void for grassroots coaches in terms of face to face support. So I know the mentor mentoring program has had to had to be scrapped presumably through due to finance excuse me finances so we're just approaching clubs and the coaches to see if we can support them on the grass um you know is, is there a budget that was actually the first question because i think clubs would be keen for it but could they afford it it seems that clubs have budgets depending on how big or small the club is and really just just like I say, fill in the void and, and get in some of these fantastic um, affiliate tutors who, who are going to left with very little work now, getting them out there working with coaches still, uh, maybe some of the mentors, you know, got some brilliant people who are doing a fantastic job. I just felt it'd be, it'd be silly 
not to get them involved and get them working around the well, around the, the county, but it's now around the region and potentially around the country. Um, so that, that's our role. We want to continue supporting grassroots coaches um, as much as we can. And so what does that look like in terms of obviously not necessarily working towards a syllabus and stuff like you would have done before? So what, what does that look like in, in practice or in situ for those? For those yeah, so it's, it's, it's very bespoke and can be tailored to what the club needs or the coaches need. So we, we've got a menu of, of um, you know, events or workshops, rolling out club philosophy, working in cluster groups, taking guest sessions. It, it, there's about 10 options on the site. Ultimately, it's what the club need and want. And sometimes the club don't know what they want or need. So that's where we come in and help them decide that. Um, I mean, a lot of clubs, some of the JPL clubs we're working with, excuse me, they've opted on almost like a monthly retainer basis. So we'll go in X number of hours a month and, and month by month we'll decide between us who needs support and and what that support looks like, really. So a learner might be on their UEFA B, and in which case we can give them additional support as well as their in situ. They might have done a playmaker and you know want to bring that to life practically. So wherever they are on the coaching journey and their qualification journey, we'll look to try and support them. And in terms of people that obviously you've got working with you um, in this, obviously you mentioned you've got a lot of FA or ex-FA um, affiliate tutors, etc. Have you got anyone, well, do you want to go through some of those names? It kind of got worse. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, so initially it was, as it, it, my role as CCD at Gloucestershire, it was, it was conversations with Nigel Quincy, who's been around a long time and is very much my mentor and my sounding board. Uh, he's still keen to keep involved. I won't let him retire yet. He's up in Gloucester, in Gloucester. Uh, Gary McLean, who was a mentor and a tutor, has, has had a pretty hefty pay cut, really, because he was, you know, he, he was reliant on, on that income from, from the two programmes. So we've got him out working, Chris Gooch, uh, a licensed coach, fantastic guy, um, Shane Duff, ex-professional footballer for Cheltenham Town. Um, he's also a B-licensed tutor, so he's on board. I've got to go through all of them. I'll forget someone if I'm not careful. Scott Murray. What 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 came as what started as a Gloucestershire thing, then dipped into Somerset, but now we're looking to roll the program out um, in Devon, Dorset, Cornwall, Wiltshire, Oxfordshire. So we're kind of hitting the whole of the south of the country and potentially East Anglia as well. Uh, a colleague of mine who will remain nameless at this point. Uh, we're talking about potentially rolling it out over there. Um, because it seems there's a, there's a market. It seems that the grassroots game and coaches within it need support and want support. I guess one of the upsides to doing it with the model that you are as well is that you can have continuity in terms of when you see people and who you see. Because I think one of the, the big things about um, <clears throat> having a relationship where you can be honest with someone is developing that relationship to begin with. And it can be hard on courses or whatnot. Um, to develop that relationship when you're seeing them infrequently, but like the JPL clubs, like you said there, if you're getting to see them once a month, you can develop those things. You can have a cup of tea and talk over football and stuff, which is, we know is one of the most invaluable ways to develop those type of relationships. Yeah, it's spot on. And I was part of uh, the pilot programme for the FA Mentoring programme, which I want to say was I don't know, eight years ago, nine years ago, possibly. I had four clubs, um, a couple of clubs over your way, actually. Um, Derry Hill and Royal Wooten Bassett. 
and then Longwood Green and oh, Bocco over here. I forgot them. Um, and the, the, what we were told at the start of that mentoring program was building rapport. That's the most important thing is to, and like you said, it takes time to build rapport and to build trust. You know, as much as, even on level two, as much as we would say it, we're coming to do an in situ support visit, the question would always be, when are you going to kind of come and assess me? They never got away, away from that learners. So no, building rapport is massive. And, and like you said, we can work with the club over, over a season or beyond. I think it's really important in what we do, yeah. And how do you think that this will develop uh, long-term? Obviously, you've mentioned kind of the scaling up in terms of possibly stretching out. You mentioned in terms of possibly doing workshops and stuff. How do you see this hopefully progressing moving forward? Hopefully, yeah, I don't want to create a monster that I can't control. Um, but at the same time, if there are available tutors in certain areas who I feel will be the right fit, and that's important uh, for the programme, then I think I will try and roll it out. And then it's, it's it's a case of demand, really. I guess if we find that, you know, a guy in Oxfordshire is covering Oxfordshire and he says, look, my diary is full, my timetable is full, but we've got clubs still asking for support, then it, it can only grow, I guess. And we need to find the right people to be to be a part of it. Um, as I mentioned about other programmes, um, another that we want to roll out, I'm looking at an online um platform as well in terms of session design and session practices but that's something that will have to be parked until the new year now because it's quite it's quite busy with the arts and support um but yeah yeah i mean have, have you started actually delivering in situ stuff have you started uh, going into clubs and whatnot yeah and how's that yeah, been? yeah it's great it's, it's been great i mean it's uh we launched on the first of october what is it now 13 so I, i've personally been out uh three or four times already um I my diary is full, so my job now is to try and make sure the other the coach developers, as we're, we're labeling them, that their diaries get full as well. So I'm supporting without Saturday mornings or out in the rain. I'm still delivering courses as well, delivered for Daughter FA. So it's just for me, after four months in lockdown and then being told I was on garden leave, I was climbing the walls. You know, I'm a, I'm personally I'm probably like yourself, but my most comfortable on a football pitch, um, not playing, but uh, certainly. Um, supporting coaches and being with coaches so yeah I'm, I'm back in a good place again and how do you think it will develop you as a as a person or, or a coach developer how do you think I guess this process is gonna help you or challenge you I I need to be it's gonna challenge me in terms of being a businessman because it's now my business is my company and you know, if it was up to me, oh, I'll come and work with your players on Saturday morning. And it was part of my role before, and my diary was full, and I loved it. I now need to be more cute and a bit more um, of a business mind about it. That's probably the biggest challenge because I'm sure you'll agree as well. I've never really worked. I wake up every morning. I don't see it as a job because I just love what I do. So um, not once I woke up, oh, I've got to go work. Just love it. So, but I've got to make sure it pays. For me and for, for the other guys as well so it's, it's managing that I guess it's, it's marrying the two up and I guess one of the things you, you mentioned there about uh, kind of having the other guys around you that you know really well and being sounding boards and stuff is the ability to challenge one another because um, not everyone has the same philosophies on football the same ways to do stuff so how do you find or how are you going to find working with a group of people who you know and obviously respect but also 
you're going to look to challenge one another about beliefs and stuff. How, how do you think that's going to help you or develop you? Yeah, that's a good question. Firstly, it's an interesting point that when I first approached tutors, so affiliate tutors who I knew would, would have very little work now because of what's happened, I was quick to say, look, I know you can do this on your own. I know you don't need me. I know you could wander down to your local clubs that you've been supporting learners from and you can get some down and something like that. They were all very keen to be part of something. They were keen to be part of a team. Uh, and, and now I don't even mention it because it's obvious that people want to be part of a team. So they can bounce ideas off each other. So they can, there'll be a network of coach developers. I guess for me then, recruitment is, is key. So I, I know all the coach developers and tutors around here. But it was reaching out to people that I trust in the organisation to recommend people. And that's where I've got to so far with, with certain individuals in, in other, other counties. I've, got, I've gone by recommendations from people I trust. Could have, the other way of doing it would have been to get hold of every single email address for every single mentor and tutor in the south of England. That it probably wants to do this. But I think you could easily lose control in terms of quality assurance. So recruitment for me is key, getting the right people involved, the right people on board. Uh, and then, like I say, just, just working with them from, from them. And will it be something that you'll try and kind of upskill them at the same time? Or is that kind of on the back burner just to try and be able to support the grassroots coaches and whatnot at the moment? I think we've, we've decided that it's, we're gonna utilize uh, Zoom video call uh, and try and, once this all gets set up and we're all out working, probably in the new year, we're, we're, when our diaries are full, hopefully, we'll certainly, you know, we'll, we'll look to have fortnightly, monthly Zoom meetings just to standardise what we're doing, standardise work. We need to ensure that as many of us are, are current tutors too, when things get up and running again, so that the messages we're sending to grassroots coaches align with those that get on course. That's so important. Hence the the title of the program, Pass and Support. It's so important that, that myself and others have still educating these in terms of their qualifications. Otherwise, the FA could go that way and Pass and Support could go that way, and that's no good for anyone. So the idea would be that you'll always keep an eye on what is being delivered on those courses, be it on Zoom and stuff, and then kind of cater your product to be able to help people through that process yeah 100 100 we're not we're not listen we're not it's not an anti-fa program this at all i'm fully behind what the fa are doing and i think i think the fa's coach education program is fantastic i've lived and breathed it for five years and, and i want to be continue being a part of it so we're, we're simply a resource that, that hopefully coaches and clubs will, will choose to to lean on if you like I think one of the big things that everyone said is there's only, well, I've heard everyone say there's only so much Zoom you can do. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you, you link, linking back to what you said at the start, you know, people want to be able to get out onto the grass and people want to be able to take the things that they've learned on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Zoom calls, webinars, whatever it is, and try and construct their practice designs in a way where they can impart the wisdom to the kids in a useful way not in just a knowledge drop um so i guess part of your thing is to 
be on the grass with them the bit that's probably that final bit of the jigsaw once you've got all this information actually just supporting them when they're there when they're with the players all that type of stuff 100% you know the when the, when the FA brought out the in-situ support model I, I don't mind telling you it was a logistical nightmare I mean, it really was to try and get everyone coaches on the same night um, you know good people who are tutoring they're good so they've got other commitments so to try and marry up everything was a logistical nightmare. However, the value of those visits, and learners have said it, you know, just a, a snippets of information from an experienced tutor or coach developer, it's worth the wait, worth its weight in gold. And, and we've had feedback around in situ support, which in, in effect is what we're looking to, to continue, isn't it, in this in this face to face support. No, it sounds like a really exciting project and obviously it'll be something to keep an eye on and mm. um, I'm sure on our social media stuff, if anything pops up, I'll, I'll send it out because I think the support that you right. guys can give is invaluable and I think, you know, those uh, those grassroots level coaches, you know, they, they want to do what's best for their kids and what their yeah. friends' kids and all that type of stuff. So any support in doing that is going to be invaluable to them. Yeah. No, and listen, it, those for people that know us as a team of tutors and know the people involved, you have to look at who's involved. We'll go over and above. You know, of course, we have to charge. It's a business. It's a company. We'll go over and above. You know, it won't be. It'll be a business transaction, but the support we'll give to these coaches and the clubs will will go far and over and above what. Love it. <laughs> so. I guess kind of winding down towards the end, a few times you've mentioned um, how you've been of the coaching roles within academies or that type of stuff. So we've discussed a lot about your coach developer role and your role as a parent, if you like, which I guess in there, I guess this links back to the degree. You're also a coach, you know, you also go and coach. So what does that journey look like for you? And what are the, some of the key takeaways you've had in, in those coaching roles? I know most recently, you obviously did a little bit alongside the uh, at Bath University with the girls yeah. Yeah. There a couple of times last year. Kind of what, what's that process look like? Yeah. What the, jo the journey goes back a long way. So I, I played as a, I wasn't a bad young player, uh, never had the drive or probability or anything to be a professional footballer. I love my football. Um, I was fortunate enough, ooh, when I was 17, in the middle of A-levels, I, um, I did some coaching for a big company called Path Soccer. Now, back then, it was uh, Path Soccer was Paul Ashworth Soccer School. Now, you might recognise the surname there. Paul was Dan Ashworth's brother. So the, Ash the Ashworths have been a big influence on me, huge influence on me. Um, so anyway, I, I did some coaching in the summer holidays. Probably the best six weeks of my life I spent um, across the South Coast coaching for past soccer fun weeks. Uh, Lewis, New Haven, I've got my map here actually, uh, Isle of Wight, uh, Eastbourne, Hastings. You know. And I thought, oh, I want to do this. My, my head coach, would you believe, was Paul Warren. So I'm name dropping now. He's now the Rotherham manager. And he taught me a lot uh, about coaching. And it was the best six weeks of my life. And I thought, oh, I want to do this. But an opportunity arose during my final A-level year to buy a franchise in, uh, in past soccer. So I flunked my A-levels, much to the displeasure of my parents, and took a five grand loan out and bought a van and got out there and, and worked in schools, organised fun weeks, fun days, after school clubs. 
and that was when it was all quite new you know the things like this uh, they, they exist now but it was quite new in those days a little bit older um i then linked up with peterborough united um where paul ashworth was and dan ashworth and uh, luke hobbs and some really good mark trace some really good um coaching people who've gone on to some big things uh don morling who's now at brighton eddie boothroyd was there so it's a good team of coaches i learned a lot of those i was the under nines manager uh, I then moved to uh, Cambridge City and ran their uh, youth development programme. And then Cambridge United, you know, down the road, got relegated. Their youth system was scrapped, so we shifted our programme over to Cambridge United um, and then produced quite a few players, to be fair, are still playing in the league now. I then took a bit of a break from football and went into teaching. Uh, so I taught a further education college. And what I found there is that those two experiences, the coaching and then the teaching, I kind of fell in or a little bit to coach education. You marry the two up. Uh, I went on my B licence with Nigel Quincy at Harbury College 13 years ago, and and he inspired me to, to become a coach educator. So I, I've tried to coach. I've been in Bristol Rovers and Bristol City Academy since moving down here, and I try and stay current. So the reason I was at Bath Uni, one of the reasons was because the only gap in my diary was 7.30 in the morning, two mornings a week. You know, I just literally had no other time. But I, I think it's so important to, to keep current. You know, I really do. Um, so hopefully I'll, I'll get to work with the girls again, just so I can keep current and keep, you know, if I'm going to spout forth in front of a classroom of people or, or support coaches, I need to be current, I think. Uh, but that, yeah, in a nutshell, that's a whistle-stop tour of my coaching journey. There are a few other bits in between, but they were the main Why bits. do you think it's so important to stay current and up-to-date? Um, I guess to, to try things. To try things. And, and you know, working with a female team, I'll be honest with you, it was a massive, still is a massive learning curve for me. Learned so much. Um, so that was probably the only... I've worked at grassroots, I've, I've worked in schools, I've worked at academies, I've worked for colleges. It was probably the the area I thought I need to I need to learn about this because we're getting learners on court who work in the female game. I need to know this. So that was important for me. But I just I think it's important to be current and I enjoy it. I think it's it's like it's being a teacher, isn't it? Teachers, the more they progress over the years, they end up being ahead and then don't teach. You know, you see that a lot, don't you? And I, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be the coach educator who doesn't coach. So um, yeah, I'll try and keep current if I can. I guess one of the benefits as well is you get to learn about each generation as well. Imagine if you look over your coaching career, each generation's different in terms of the way that they act, the way that they, the pressures they have. Like 20 years ago, we had no social media. Now everyone's on social media. So I guess for you, that's quite a, being able to stay engaged, you are able to, relate your your coach education head to going oh actually this is what ground zero looks like yeah great point because society has changed players have changed youngsters have changed massively whether we like it or not and yes i i think back to when i first started coaching maybe how i spoke to the children now I think, god you know but then that's how you did you you would tell kids off then you could an old-fashioned telling off and yeah you got to You've got to treat people differently now and so i've yeah i've had to move with the times as we all have so i think it's a great point yeah knowing knowing youngsters now 
And how important do you think your foundation of working in schools or working in those holiday and soccer camps has been for your career moving forward? Massive. Absolutely massive. Um, I think I'm going to sound old now and grumpy, but I do think that, you know, I look at my own pathway and I, it was different back then. I took my prelim, I was 18. I took my UEFA B, was 21, but failed it. Then only felt confident enough to uh, retake it nine years later. My A license four or five years ago. So it took me a long, take me a long time. Within that time, I worked, I must have clocked up thousands of hours of practice in schools, you know, in development centres, different types of, different ages, different motivations, learned so much. And I think sometimes young people go on, come on course, whiz through the qualifications, don't really do their apprenticeship. Fine, it's the way of the world. But I don't think they're a better coach for it. I think you you only really learn from getting things wrong, working with players, trying stuff, reflecting. Uh, and that takes years to become a. I'm not saying I'm, a, I'm an outstanding coach by any means, but it takes years to gain that experience. I think. Do you have concerns about um, coaches that just go straight into like performance or elite things rather than having that grounding at the the grassroots or I don't have concerns but I think I think for their own development it would help them but I don't have concerns I think it's the way of the world now I think I think it's um I think then that yeah if, if that's the way they want to go that's absolutely fine I think they would find it hard to drop down into grassroots football but it might be something they don't want to do but they're not concerns it was changing Cool. So listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go because I appreciate you've been on the on the call for a yeah, little while. But, um, I've got one last question, which is something I asked everyone, which is who's the best um, player you've either played Blimey. with or against or worked with or against, and why? And then who's the best coach, or in your case, coach developer you've you've worked with um, or against? Again, why and why? Blimey! Right. Um, I think the best player I've worked with is potentially I say potentially young Lloyd Kelly who's at Bournemouth now and I say that because he's I believe he'll play for England uh, he, he, the game comes easy to him he's an absolute Rolls Royce and providing he can stay injury free um, I think he'll he'll be go on to be the best player I've worked with he's also a fabulous man Really, really good guy. And he's my son's hero. And he's got posters up here. Even though he's left Bristol City, he's still his hero. But I think I think if you were to ask me that question in three, four years' time, it'll be him. Yeah. Uh, best coach educator? I have to say uh, my mentor, Nigel Quincy. Still going strong. I won't tell you how old he is, but um, he, he's just got so much knowledge and experience and a way of getting things across. And he keeps current as well. That's the thing. He, he's delivered every qualification over the years, but he keeps current. And his advice and influence has been, uh, it's just been baseball uh, for me. It's been fantastic. So yeah, those, those two, I think answer you correctly. Perfect. Listen, Steve, <laughs> I really appreciate your time and um, good luck with the, obviously, new... new Thanks, Michael. And yeah. whatnot. And yeah. I'm sure from the conversation we've had there, a lot of people will, will see... Um, how invaluable kind of your, your support and stuff will be. So yeah, thank you for your time. And hope uh, thanks, thanks for inviting me on. I really enjoyed chatting to you. Cheers. Speak to you soon. Cheers.
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.